You know, folks, as we come to celebrate our, our freedom, our independence, you know, one thing in my prayer time the Lord really touched me with, and you've heard me say, talking about this building, to whom much is given, much is expected. You know, we stand before God with what we've been given and how we used it. And, you know, you and I will stand before God with something that, that believers throughout history, most believers throughout history, have, will not have to stand before God for. We'll stand before God with freedom. We had the freedom to spread the gospel without any fear of persecution. We had the freedom to, to grow the church and to be public about our faith without any fear of persecution. You know, most believers throughout history have not had that kind of freedom. We have. You do realize God's going to ask you, what did you do with it? What did you do with that freedom? That's a question as we wave flags and, and celebrate on Flag Day and July 4th and days like this throughout the year. We need to be asking ourselves, what am I doing with what God's giving me? I want to talk with you today a little bit about the word righteous. That word appears 3,070 times in the Bible. Now, as a professional student of the uh, Scriptures, I can formally and officially tell you that's a lot. 3,070 times is a lot of times. Clearly, this word righteous, righteousness, is a major theme of Scripture. I mean, folks, in many respects, you could say the Bible's about righteousness. About righteousness. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean to you, to me? You know, we've, we've had kind of different meanings in culture of that word. You know, during the 60s and 70s, uh, when we were going to say things like cool or awesome or great, that word was there. We'd say righteous. Now, I'm guessing that quite often when somebody said righteous, that what they were referring to probably was not the biblical definition of righteousness. You know, I think if you went out on the, on the street today and you asked somebody, hey, what, what, is, what do you think of? What comes to your mind when you think of the word righteous? You know, I think you'd find more often than not a negative response. Because if you think about how that word is most often used today, it's coined with that word self. We refer to somebody as self-righteous. You know, that individual or that group of people that thinks they're better than everybody else because they, they keep some set of rules, or at least they give you the idea that they keep some set of rules and that makes them better than you. And obviously, you know, this is how the, the general public looks at the American Christian church. They think we come in here and sit in here on Sunday morning and we pat ourselves on the back because we're better than everybody out there because we, we go to church. We're better than everybody out there because we keep this list of rules. Is that what it's talking about 3,070 times in the Scriptures? No, it's really not. Let's see if we can understand a little bit more about what this is about. Would you turn with me this morning to John chapter 5? John chapter 5, fourth book into the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some in the chairs uh, in front of you. Not necessarily every one, but kind of spread out. Hopefully you can reach one or have somebody hand you one. We want everybody to be able to, to look at God's Word. John chapter 5, I'm going to begin in verse 1. And would you believe that of the 3,070 occurrences of the word righteous, not one of them is in the passage I'm about to read. 
But I think you'll find, I hope we'll find that that's what that is about. Look with me, John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. After this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Hebrew, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a multitude of the sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. Because an angel would go down into the pool from time to time and stir up the water. Then the first one who got in after the water was stirred up recovered from whatever ailment he had. One man who had been sick for th- one man was there who'd been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Sir, the sick man answered, I don't I don't have a man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming down, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your bedroll and walk. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his bedroll and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, this is the Sabbath. It's illegal for you to carry or to pick up your bedroll. He replied, well, the man who made me well told me, pick up your bedroll and walk. Well, who is this man who told you, pick up your bedroll and walk, they asked. But the man who was cured did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. After this, Jesus found him in the temple complex and said to him, see, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus responded to them, my father is still working and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, I want you to know something kind of interesting here. You'll notice in the very first verse, it says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem to go to the Jewish festival. There was four festivals a year in the Jewish faith, in the in the Jewish religion and ceremony. Along with this, as you go through the Gospels, you'll notice that Jesus goes to the synagogue every Sabbath. You know, I point that out because religion and ritual have kind of become dirty words in our culture. As a matter of fact, they're kind of dirty words in the church, aren't they? Don't we say Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And we trumpet that. We're we're not religion, we're not man-made, we're we're not just about a list of rules that you keep to, to make a God up there happy. We say that all the time. And you know what, I agree with that statement. If we're defining religion as man's attempt... To make God happy. If we're defining religion as it so often is. Kind of mindless conformity. Kind of a mindless going through the motions. Whether your heart or life is in it. Yeah, we we don't really promote that. But I think sometimes we throw the baby out with the bathwater. The word religion is not bad. Especially when it's the Christian religion. You know, a lot of people will use that idea about religion being best. You know, I'm not, I'm not into organized religion. I, I'm not into the, the ceremony and all of that kind of stuff. Well, folks, Jesus was. 
Jesus attended the ceremony. Jesus attended the formality. Jesus was, as we would say in our language and culture, Jesus was in church every weekend. That's what he did. So religion has a place in our understanding of who God is and how we worship and celebrate him together, organized, even in a calendar formation. That's a part of knowing God. Now, notice also in the passage here right away, it goes into some pretty distinct detail about where this event took place. Because of that, historians and archaeologists have been able to to pretty much nail down the specific spot where this took place. If you went to Jerusalem today and and were on a tour there, they would take you to old Jerusalem. It'd be a northeast corner of the city. And they would take you to the spot where this exact thing happens. It happened right here. Can you imagine that? And because of our our historical knowledge of this place, we know this was a a place that was originally dedicated to pagan gods, to false gods. And and they would bring their sick there. And this was supposed to be a a place of healing. You know, it's interesting as this passage reads it, if you just kind of read it at face value, it kind of sounds like the, the scriptures verifying the validity of this place. And it's really not doing that. It's not saying this is what happened It's saying this is the story behind this pool. There was this pool and people believed if if you went there and you could get in the water whenever it was stirred up, that was an angel. And if you jumped in, first one in got healed. That's where we got our expression. First one in is a rotten egg. Now, that's not true. I just totally made that up. The scripture is not saying this actually happened. It's saying there was people there who believed in that. Now, can you imagine if you were to walk up on this pool, the the desperation that would be surrounding that? The the hopelessness, the helplessness as you've got this pool and all of these sick and dying people laying around it and they're basically waiting for something like a lottery. You know, just possibly, maybe. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't say if it's stirred up once a week or once a year. And of course, we know that our main character here has been sick for 38 years. It doesn't say he was by that pool for 38 years, that he was sick for 38 years, but the Scripture certainly implies that for a significant portion of that time, he was by that pool. Well, that's a long time to have hope go unfulfilled, isn't it? That's a long time for something to not work out for you. Well, it's into this scene that Jesus walks and he walks up to this man. He knows how long he's been sick. You say, how does he know? Because he's the son of God. He knows everything. And he walks up to him and he says what appears to be kind of a strange question, isn't it? I mean, I mean, at best, kind of insensitive, maybe at worst, kind of ignorant. Do you want to get well? Now, can you kind of imagine yourself in that man's position? You've been laying there. You've been sick for 38 years. And somebody walks up to you and says, do you want to get better? I mean, I think I'm looking at that guy going, "What? are are you kidding me? Is is this a joke? Of course I want to get better. But you know, Jesus' question is not insensitive. Jesus' question is not ignorant. Jesus' question is very pointed. Because as we're going to see in a moment, this man's sickness is connected with sin. You know, when we sin, it causes problems. 
Now, we don't sin because it causes problems. We, we sin often because we think it, it helps problems. It corrects problems. It, it makes us better. It fixes things, but it doesn't. It causes things to break down emotionally, spiritually, relationally, physically. And so when Jesus walks up and says, do you want to get better? He's saying, do you want to get better? Not from the problem, but what from, what, from what caused the problem. Man, everybody wants to get over problems. Everybody wants to have problems cleaned out of their lives. But do you want to be healed from what's caused those problems? Folks, I believe as you look throughout humanity, the answer is no. Most of us do not want to be healed from our sin. We like our sin. Uh, my, my sin is how I define. I wouldn't know how to define life without that bitterness. Uh, that, that bitterness has so painted everything I look at. If you remove my bitterness, I won't know how to look at anything. I like my lust. I like my anger. I like my greed. That's how we work through life. So Jesus' question is very pointed. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed from what's causing the problem? Now this healing is a little bit different from the other healings in Scripture, in that, and I hope you notice this, Jesus is the one who took the initiative. Jesus approached the man and said, do you want to be healed? The man didn't approach him. By the way, did you notice the man didn't answer Jesus' question? He didn't say, yes, I want to be healed, or no, I don't want to be healed. He just explained why he was there. But he didn't ask Jesus to heal him. As a matter of fact, he doesn't know Jesus. Doesn't know his name, doesn't know his reputation, doesn't know anything about him. He has no faith in Jesus. Which is kind of an important point for us to see, isn't it? We talk so much about how critical faith is. How critical it is to our life, our walk with God, to our ability to know God and enjoy God. Faith is critical to us. But faith is not critical for God doing something. God is not limited by the faith we show or the lack of faith we show. I think sometimes we hear some different things. Very clear right here. This man has no faith in Christ. He didn't even ask anything from Christ. His faith is in a, in a pool of water and bubbles. And at this moment, Jesus speaks all the authority of Jesus' word. Jesus speaks and the man is instantly, completely healed. Now in that healing, Jesus said, get up, pick up your bedroll, your sleeping bag. Can we call it sleeping bag the rest of the morning? Pick up your sleeping bag and walk. And that's what he did. And therein lies our third sign. You remember, we're studying seven signs of Jesus performed in the Gospel of John. Now, a sign is something that's right in front of you, a physical object, an event. It's, it's real, it's right there. But obviously, you know what a sign does, don't you? It points you. It points you to something beyond the sign itself. In the first sign, in John chapter 2, we looked at Jesus transform water into wine. We see Jesus' authority and power over physical nature. But that sign points us to something beyond that, and that is Jesus' power spiritually to transform our lives from spiritual emptiness to fullness, from spiritual worthlessness to spiritual value. 
We come to the second sign in John chapter 4. That was also a healing. And we saw Jesus in that moment heal from a distance. Remember, he wasn't even there. He wasn't where the sick person was. But he doesn't have to be. And we see that as he heals through distance, that that sign calls us, points us to faith. I may not always see immediately the answer to prayer or how God's going to answer that prayer. But what I see in this sign is God is working. But sometimes before he shows us that work, he wants to see if we'll trust, if we'll have faith. And now in this third sign, I believe, obviously we see the sign shows again Jesus' authority to heal. But I believe this sign is calling us to a life of righteousness. Now let me explain what I mean by that. You see here in these first few verses, Jesus walk up in this whole interaction with this man. And then they, they kind of part company and the man's with the, the Jews. But then they come back together again in verse 14. And look what happens there. Remember, Jesus has entered this man's life. He's entered into a hopeless and helpless situation. And, this, and, and Jesus does his work. Jesus does the work of God in this man's life. But you know what? Jesus didn't do that work so that this man would return to his hopeless and helpless situation. So Jesus looks at this man and we realize now that what the problem is, Jesus says, stop sinning. Sinning messes up the work of God in your life. Stop sinning. Now, we don't know what this man's sin was. It doesn't tell us. We don't know if his sin is outward and blatant. You know, he bites people's head off every time they go by. Or we don't know if his sin was inward. It was, it was greed or anger or bitterness, something inside that maybe people didn't see. Doesn't matter what his sin was. The Son of God knew what it was. Jesus knew what it was, and he said, stop sinning. Sinning will mess up the work of God in your life. Now, this, can kind of, this passage can kind of cause some problems, can't it? Is this passage saying that if you're sick, it's because of sin? Not necessarily. Matter of fact, a little later on, you can turn over to John chapter 9 and Jesus is teaching there and he very clearly says, not all disasters, not all sicknesses are the result of sin. But as we're here in John chapter 5, it is clear that it can be. Some sicknesses may be the cause of sin. So Jesus says, stop sinning or what? Something worse may happen. What what does he mean by that? Well, I guess on one level, he he could mean, you know, if you go on back to that sin, you're going to wind up right back at this pool. You're going to wind up right back with your sickness. But what I'm sure Jesus means is, if you're not careful, you're going to end up with something worse. You're going to end up with an eternal condition. You see, this man's more accountable now than he was before. You and I, we're accountable for our freedom I've been given freedom. I have to give an account to God for what I did with that freedom. Well, this man here, he's been the eyewitness of the work and revelation of God. Well, he's been more than an eyewitness. He's been the recipient of God's work. And now he's going to have to stand before God for what he did with that. And if he took God's work and returns to sin, well, there's an eternal condition there that he needs to be warned of. Jesus says, stop sinning. 
I didn't do this work for you to return to sin. Oh, folks, you and I, we plead for the work of God, don't we? We come into church, we get on our knees, we get alone, and we plead for God to work in our lives. But do we really want Him to work? Do we really want Him to fix what's caused that problem? And are we ready to respond with righteous living? Now, what does that mean, righteous living? Well, enter the Pharisees. Verse 10. Now, it doesn't say Pharisees, does it? What's it say? It says Jews. But when it says the Jews, it's not referring to all Jews in the nation or even all Jews there. Jesus was a Jew. I'm pretty sure he wasn't persecuting himself. The disciples were there. They're, they're Jews. They're not persecuting Jesus. No, when it says the Jews, it's referring to a group of people that would represent the Jews. That's the figureheads, the leaders. And throughout the Gospels, that's the Pharisees. The Pharisees did not see Jesus and they did not see the miracle. What they did see was this man running around town with a sleeping bag under his arm. You can't do that. What's wrong with you carrying a sleeping bag on the Sabbath? You can't do that. Now that's not a biblical rule. It's an application of a biblical rule. The biblical rule is honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's God's command. Now, what the Pharisees did, and I believe with absolutely good intentions, the Pharisees said, what does that mean to honor this day? What does that look like? How do we help people understand that? And they literally came up with 39 rules of what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath day. Guess what rule number 39 was? You can't carry your sleeping bag on the Sabbath. That's not honoring God. That's, that's not keeping that day holy. You can't do that. Now, folks, really, honestly, I believe it is with the best intentions that they came up with these rules. But for some reason, in, human, in our human nature, our human tendency, once we make up these rules, we tend to make those rules on par with Scripture itself. It's called legalism. Legalism starts off with a desire to honor God, a desire to obey God's word, to apply God's word. But somewhere in there, the application of God's word becomes more important than God's word. And we begin to use it to judge people. We begin to use it to push people down. That's what's going on here. That's not righteousness. It is not righteousness to beat people up with your rules of scripture. Now, don't misunderstand me, folks. You need to apply Scripture. You need to read it and understand it. And you need to say, you know what? As I read this passage, I believe this is what it's calling me to do. Folks, if you read Scripture and you believe it's telling you, don't carry your sleeping bag on, on the Sabbath, or as in our day, what, don't carry your sleeping bag on Sunday, then folks, by all means, don't carry your sleeping bag on Sunday. D don't do that. But don't then turn and see somebody else who's carrying a sleeping bag and make your application of that passage your judgment on their lives. You say, well, all I'm trying to do is be righteous. All I'm trying to do is help other people be righteous. You know what? God is utterly unimpressed with you. He will not respect or honor your intent. You say, gosh, pastor, that, you sound so strong and almost mean about that. Folks, what I just described was the Pharisees. 
They did nothing more than want to understand God's word and apply it. And they took those applications and they beat people up with it. Matter of fact, those rules that they came up with so blinded them to God. They murdered him. Why didn't the people accept Jesus? Why didn't the Pharisees? How couldn't they see? All they saw was rules. They saw so many rules. They crucified Jesus. Do you see the irony of this passage? Here is Jesus over here talking to this man saying, Stop sinning. Come into a right life with God. And over here, the Jews are ready to begin persecuting, ultimately kill him. Why? Because he doesn't promote right living. You see, folks, righteousness is not about a list of rules. It looks a lot like it. Oh, hands down, it looks a lot like you're keeping a list of rules when you're being righteousness. But see, righteousness doesn't begin with rules. Righteousness begins with the heart. Let me give you a very simple definition of righteousness. Being righteous is doing what is right by God and by man. Now, there is a command, a rule, if you will, in Scripture that says we're to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Folks, I am not here today so that when I leave at 12.05, I can check off rule number four. I'm covered. One of the top ten. Got it taken care of this week. It is not a rule that drove me to this house today. No, I'm here today because it's right. It's right by God to be here today. The Scripture helped me to understand that. The, sh- the Scripture showed me what was right. You know what? It's right to be here today. It's right to gather together as believers and to sing praises and to study His Word and to bring our gifts into His house. You know, a lot of this stuff we can do alone, but the Scripture says we should do it together. It's right. It's right by God to do this. It is not a rule that brought me here. It is because it's right by God. It's right to be here. When I, when I tell the truth, when you tell the truth, it shouldn't be because there's a rule. You should tell the truth because it's right. It's right by God. It's right by the person you're talking to. When you pursue purity, you do that because it's right by the other person and it's right by God. When you forgive, you do that because it's right. Not because it feels good. Not because the person deserves it. Not because they're going to change. You do it because it's right. It's right by God. It's right by others. Now watch this. When I don't forgive, when I don't tell the truth, when I don't pursue purity, when I don't gather in God's house, guess what? I'm doing not the right thing, but the wrong thing. When you do the wrong thing, guess what happens? Things start to break. They break emotionally, they break spiritually, they break relationally. Apparently, sometimes they can break physically. And that's when Jesus looks into our life and says, you know what? I didn't do this work so that you would return to doing the wrong thing. I didn't do this work so you could return to your hopeless and helpless situation. Folks, God has worked in your life. God has worked in your life. Don't sin. Do what is right so that you can enjoy the work of God in your life. Now, I've got some good news for you. 
Because, boy, there's a lot of situations out in life, aren't there? There's a hundred different things every single day, every single week. Well, what's the right thing here? What's the right thing by that person? What's the right thing by God? God's given us the Bible. This shows me what is right in all situations. I don't ever have to wonder. I don't have to guess. I've got to be in God's word. It will train my heart and my mind to know what is right by God and by others. Now, there is still a little bit of a problem, and that is I can't do what is right. Not consistently, not in a way that counts forever. But you know what? God sends the Holy Spirit to come and live in me. And he will empower me to do what is right. Now, here's the really good news. Because on occasion, I haven't done what is right. Not by God, not by others. So God the Father sent his son into this world to pay the penalty. To wash away all the places I did wrong. To wash away all the places I didn't do what was right by others and by God. And you say, well, does this just happen for everybody? When, when does this all begin? You notice I said the Holy Spirit lives in us. He doesn't live in any, everybody. Well, who does he live in? How does that happen? That happens when we place our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, Romans 5.1 says we have been declared righteous by faith in Christ. See, what happens when I place my faith in what Jesus did for me at the cross, God from heaven in his court legally declares me right before him forever. It's covered. That's how big what Jesus did is. So in heaven that day, which was for me, May 12, 1982, I was declared right in the courts of heaven by the one true judge. I am right with God forever. And then God the Father sent into my life the Holy Spirit to come and live in me. So I now have the power to live out what has already been declared about me. I can now live in the way that God has said that I am. I can now live righteously. Has that happened in your life? Have you been declared right with God in the courts of heaven? Boy, if you haven't. There's no reason to leave here today without that happening. You can today be declared right by God. You can today have the Holy Spirit come and live within you so you can begin living righteously, right by God and right by others. This has everything to do with whether or not we get into heaven. This has everything to do with whether or not we enjoy the rewards of God. Jesus has won that opportunity for you. Will you come into a relationship with him? Place your faith in Jesus Christ. In just a second, we're going to stand and we're going to sing as we do. If you know you're not right with God, if you know that decision has not been made in your life, would you step out of these seats? Come down here. There'll be a pastor down here. Would you walk up to him and say, I want to be right with God? And let us pray with you for a moment and talk with you about how you can come into that relationship. Maybe today you don't really have a formal relationship with the church. What did Jesus show us? The ceremony, the formality. He was a part of it. A connection with God's people is not kind of a loose from a distance connection. We belong. Well, if you're not a part of a church home, a church family, this is a time where you can become a member of our church. You just step out, come down here, tell one of these pastors, I want to be a member here. And we'll help you with that decision too. What is Jesus calling you today? I'll tell you. He's calling you to righteousness. So what step do you need to take?